Good morning and welcome to each one here this morning as we have gathered in this holy light to uh, again partake in this ordinance we call communion and the the things that that um, means to us by by celebrating this together. Certainly, I was thinking here this morning as we were singing, you know, life. If we don't, if we don't watch out, life can just kind of turn into a a a, a blur of routine. And um, depending on who we are and how we relate to that, and what we all decide to pile on our plates, it can end up being <clears throat> quite a pile sometimes. And I think God, in His wisdom, knew that uh, this is the way we we tend to be as humans, isn't it? I mean, that's just kind of the way it works out. And so he set apart one day a week that we come together and we think about something else besides work and activity. And beyond that, he exhorts us to occasionally uh, commemorate other things, to remember uh, what has happened um, uh, many years ago that's still extremely relevant to our Christian life today. And so our church um, has... uh, commemorated this twice a year for many years, and I suppose we'll probably continue to do it that way for many years, but it's an orderly, systematic way of sitting down and stopping and thinking about what has taken place and what that means to us. And so we're glad to do that again this morning. We can turn to 1 Timothy 6 this morning for a springboard to the message. This isn't where we're going to dwell all morning, but we're going to get our start here, and um, I think there's some good things for us to think about. You understand, perhaps, where my mind is going as we read this. So, the book of uh, Timothy is written by Paul to uh, a young minister, and uh, with some exhortations that some are specific to uh, to perhaps a, a person that's called to the ministry, but I would say... Uh, Practically all of the book can be extended to a much broader audience, and there's there's a very little of it that's so specific to uh, ministry that we can't all apply it to our own lives. And so we're going to do that this morning. I'm going to break in, and we're going to start reading at verse 11. And again, this is kind of breaking in here, but but it's enough that we can get the train of thought. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and he's talking about the evil and uh, love of money, etc., before these verses here. Flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And we're going to stop reading there. But there's two phrases in here that that strike me when I read them, and um, I would like to combine them and, and inspire us this morning from these two phrases. You may have noticed them. Paul in verse 12 is is proting um, Timothy here to fight his good fight and <clears throat> to profess a good profession. Okay, so that's 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 what I wish you to do is profess a good profession. And then he says, I give you this charge in the sight of God in verse 13 and with Jesus Christ. And then he said, who before Pontius Pilate confessed a good confession? So I'd like to take those two phrases and meld them into one and inspire us with this title, The Good Confession That Inspires a Good Profession. We all like kind of like um, 
professionals, don't we? When we have a rattle in our car that shouldn't be there, we just assume that a professional will take care of it, or at least somebody that at least claims to, to have these credentials. I had a little issue in, with my silo unloader a few weeks ago, and uh, silo unloaders are going by the way of uh, threshing machines. There's not very many of them in use anymore. And um, to find a professional to work on your silo unloader is, is, getting, is getting difficult. And uh, I had this issue, and so I called a person that I, I believe he considers himself a professional, and I do too, and we had him out. But the problem is uh, he spent the, the most part of his profession not working on badger unloaders. But the uh, unloader that I have happens to be a badger, and the place where it was purchased 40, 50 years ago no longer services them. So I'm kind of stuck. But the man came out and he gave it his best shot. But he admitted to me, as we're up there in the silo, that he really doesn't know much about these machines and he's kind of learning as he goes. So my, my, um, my uh, um, trust in his professionalism was sinking. But we got it going. And so we climbed out of the silo and we, well, we didn't. We could have. We sort of high-fived each other and he went on his way. And I called him all the way from Wisconsin. And um, I went on my way, too, told the boys, silo unloader's fixed, go out, run it. They ran it. It didn't make it halfway around the silo and quit again. So obviously we had not fixed the problem. So I called him up, and he was apologetic, and he's like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I, you know we, I can come out again, whatever, but, you know, this is kind of like practicing medicine. It's going to be kind of, you know, I don't know what's going on. Anyway, so I called a professional that used to work on Badger Side One Loaders, and through the phone he walked me through it, and I, which is a complete novice at working on silo unloaders, I got through it. We got it working, and I actually almost struggled with a little pride about myself that I actually got this thing to work through just a conversation on the phone with, um, with this man. But anyway, you get the point. The reason this man was not a professional is because he didn't do it every day, all right? You and I, as we walk the Christian life, we should be becoming professionals at it. And we can be. There's no reason we can't be. And we should be. And we've had, we've had a man that has walked the face of this earth at one time. His name was Jesus Christ. Who not only gave a good confession, but he also had a, a perfect profession. And he gave us an example and he gave us teaching that when we fail to live up to our profession, it's not Jesus' fault. That's our problem. We have not learned well. We have not practiced well. Something has gone awry with us. It's not that he doesn't know how to fix the silo. Right? He's the professional. Let's look just a little bit here at this call in these verses. I don't know whether there's any uh, significance in verse 11 to the order that Paul lays this out, the things that should be followed after. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Is there any significance to that order? I'm not going to insinuate that there necessarily is, but as I looked at it and meditated on it, I'm going to suggest this morning that there could be. Number one, think of it this way. Think of righteousness and godliness. Things that are generally fairly obvious. If we're honest with ourselves, there's not too many things or questions or decisions in life that we will face that we will not at least have a relatively good idea which is the path of righteousness and godliness and which one is not. Okay, That doesn't mean that we always follow that path. That doesn't mean that we're not tempted to act like we don't know what is righteousness and godliness. But I would say that there's few times in life that we don't have a general sense that this is the path of godliness. Now, I'm, I'm talking in, a, in somewhat of a bigger picture. We may encounter decisions, uh, detailed decisions in life, <clears throat> that maybe we could say, you know, we see two different paths here we could follow, and each one at this juncture seems like a path that could be a safe path to take. I think those those times... Uh, do do occur in our lives, but but at those junctures, we're still saying we understand what righteousness and godliness is. We think both of these paths could lead in, lead in that direction with this decision. I'm talking more big picture. Generally speaking, we know that to 
to, to get angry and uh, throw a fit is not godliness. All right, that's not that hard to figure out. Even though everything inside of us wants to do that at that given moment. And we could give other illustrations. So I would say the starting point here, all our choices and decisions must be following the ways of godliness and righteousness. And I think we can know these things. The next thing I see here is faith. This one is maybe a bit more difficult to determine at times. What is the way of faith here in this situation? And what is the, the, um, what constitutes just neglect on my part when I have it within my power, if you will, or within my resources to take care of a particular problem? Um, that sometimes is not exactly as, as easily discerned as we would like it to be. But I would also say um, part of that problem is that in our humanness, we tend to err away from faith, and we tend to want to take care of our own problems. So maybe those problems or those decisions aren't as hard as we sometimes make them. But I would say that there's a legitimate way that, that perhaps we can, we, can, we can be a little fuzzy on that sometimes. But again, I would ask us, run it through the filter of righteousness and godliness. Perhaps that could be helpful. Then the last three I see here, love, patience, and meekness. I, I, I labeled these the softer qualities of the Christian life, and yet they are quite essential qualities of the Christian life. And sometimes, <clears throat> finding the way to express these qualities through the framework work of righteousness and godliness can be a challenge. So let me explain this a little bit. Uh, there is a chapter in the Bible that says the greatest quality that we can possess is love. And because we believe the Bible, we have to say, well, that's true. That is indeed the greatest quality. The problem lies is sometimes we misunderstand what love is. And I'll give you a very simple illustration, and you'll get it when I'm done with the illustration. If I have a child who is three years old, or two years old even, or maybe even a year and a half, I'm not sure where that all lies, and he is throwing a royal fit, you know, he's following his carnal nature 100%. Something went against his will, he's throwing a fit. Now, if we're going to be biblical people, we know to show love to that child at that time is not to ignore the fit. It is to administer some sort of discipline that he knows that his actions are outrageous, it's unacceptable, and will not be tolerated. That is the greatest act of love you can bestow on that child at that time. To ignore it and to wait till he settles down and then uh, breathe a deep sigh of relief that the show is over is not the way of righteousness and godliness. Okay, And that's where things can get a little muddled sometimes. We can, uh, we can say, well, you know, we're going to show love, and in our showing of love, we're not going to administer discipline, which is the worst thing we can do for this child. Patience, likewise a little difficult sometimes. We are called over and over and over to be long-suffering. But to be long-suffering does not mean that we will eternally ignore um, poor... Uh, how do I want to say this? Poor behavior on the part, again, of our children or anybody else that uh, we are put in authority over. And it's difficult to know where those lines are crossed. It really is. Meekness. Sometimes meekness is understood as being spineless or even at times stubborn. As we're going to see in today's, um, a little deeper into today's message, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and he didn't open his mouth, I believe Pilate interpreted that as being stubborn and maybe even a little bit belligerent, a little bit in your face. Like, come on, Jesus, you answer me. Do you realize who I am? And uh, Jesus doesn't open his mouth. He was he was being, as, as Isaiah put it, he was as a meek lamb before the slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. He was accused falsely, etc. Verse 12 goes on to tell us what to expect. It tells us to expect a fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Pursue eternal life. And this exercise of a lifetime never gets over. We will not rest from this pursuit until we lie in our graves. But if we persistently pursue these things every day, that's in front of us, fighting the good fight of faith, 
you and I will become professionals at what we do. Paul then gives the authority by which he gives his orders in verse 13. He said, I give it by two people. He said, I give it by God, who is the giver and sustainer of your life, and by Jesus, because Jesus gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. It seems the confession of Pilate before Pilate is front of mind of many of, of, of one thing, of many noble things that Jesus did. He pulls this out and he says, you know, stop and consider the, the, the confession that Jesus gave before Pilate and see where you can incorporate that confession into your profession. And then in verses 15 and 16, Paul elaborates who Jesus actually is. He said he is the blessed and only potentate. So, so much for any earthly potentate that has ever come or ever will come. He is the only one. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He alone is immortal. It says he dwells in light that cannot be approached unto, which no man has seen or can see. Now, Paul had a little bit of a flash of that light on his road to Damascus, did he not? And um, I believe that that little glimpse, that camera flash, if you will, of, uh, of course, the camera still flash today? I think you know what I mean. Um, and and, and you, you get it. He, he had, a, he had a, um, an experience there with that light, and he was, he was duly impressed by it. And he said, his honor and his power is everlasting, while honor and power for a human is very fickle. Let's consider for just a moment this man called Pontius Pilate before we, we launch into the confession. I, I didn't know much about Pontius Pilate until I researched it just a little bit in preparation for this message. What I know of him is from the scripture. And when, I don't know if you're like me, but when I think of Pilate, I think of a vacillating kind of a weak character, you know, he's like talking to Jesus, trying to act like tough guy, then he goes out to the crowd and he's like, I, I can't find anything wrong with him, you know, can't, shouldn't we just let him go and and uh, then he threatens Jesus and lets him get beat and then he's back out to the crowd just begging to let him go and, and at one point he throws up his hands and he says I don't even know what truth is anymore you know, kind of this guy that's just like, you know, anything but an, an exhibition of toughness, right? Well, it's, it was interesting for me to find out, as I researched it, that secular historians would tell us that Pilate was a tough guy. I mean, he was just, he was just as ruthless and, and hardcore and, and um, mean as any Roman official got. I mean, he, had his, his, he made his mark in his day to the point that secular historians, at least one of them that I read, questioned the biblical account because they said that the biblical account does not portray Pilate as secular history does. Well, I, I have an idea on this. Pilate was the only person in secular history that had a, a criminal, if you will, like Jesus in front of him. And when this so-called criminal was in front of him, who we just described here in 1 Timothy 6 as this Lord of Lord and King of Kings, etc., he had an experience like none other and, and he never would have hereafter. He had a man before him who was obviously very different than any criminal that had ever stood before him before or ever would again. I think Jesus' words, his demeanor, his thoughtfulness, and this crime that he was supposedly had committed made Pilate very, very nervous and unsure of himself. And just as a little aside, shouldn't that be the way it is when, when somebody that represents Christ shows up at a godless crowd? Who should be nervous? Who should be nervous? Us or them? Think about that. But this morning, I would again like to draw some inspiration from this part of the story, the, um, the confession before Pontius Pilate that can motivate us to a better profession. So turn with me now to John 18. The Gospel of John gives the longest narrative of, um, of this confession. The other Gospels don't give as much. And so we're going to draw from John here. 
And I'm going to do something this morning that I don't do very often, and that is going to, I'm going to read a long swat of Scripture here so that we can get exactly the feel for what happened, and uh, you can contemplate with me about this confession as we have it right here in the Bible. <clears throat> so we're going to start at John 18, verse 28, and we're going to read through 1928. So it's a fairly long reading, but we're going to read it. All right, John 18, verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment, and it was very early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a male factor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying that what death he should die. <clears throat> then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my, is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. <clears throat> Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one of the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him in their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I can, that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him, and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. <clears throat> then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard this saying, he brought Jesus forth and set him down on the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered him, then delivered he him, therefore, 
unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is in the Hebrew, Golgotha. When they, when they crucified him, I'm sorry, where they crucified him, and two other with him on either, either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And I'm going to stop reading there. We can continue to read, but we get more into the crucifixion count and, and less about the confession, and so I'm going to just cease there. But I see four things in this conversation with Pilate that I believe Paul may have been referring to when he talked about the good confession that Jesus made before Pilate. The first one I'm referring to comes in chapter 18, verse 33 and 34. When... Uh, when Pilate comes to Jesus and says, um, you know, you're being, people out there are saying that you're the king of the Jews. And Jesus answered him with somewhat of, I think it hit Pilate as a little odd. He said, do you, do you say this of yourself or does someone else tell you this? And I, and I really think that took Pilate a bit off guard. In the other gospels, um, where it's recorded that Pilate asked this question. It simply states that Jesus didn't answer anything. But here it says that Jesus asked this question here in, uh, in this gospel. I think the answer made Pilate uneasy, gave him a time to question and ponder what Jesus was actually saying. Jesus is saying, what is motivating your question, Pilate? Is the motivation of your question, whether I'm the king of the Jews, does that come from something you have observed in me? Or are you simply asking that question because there's an angry mob out here that is, that is accusing me of saying that, and you're giving them an audience? Which is it? Now, we don't know for sure whether Pilate had heard about Jesus prior to this day or not. We don't know that for sure. But I'm going to make... I'm going to make a. Um, uh, I'm going to take a guess that is it is quite likely that he may have or that he he would have. The fact that Herod knew about Jesus and uh, actually wished to meet the guy and, and was happy whenever Pilate sent him over to him there for a period of time because he really wanted to see a miracle, and um, Herod thought this would be his opportunity or whatever. But this this miracle producing man that was walking around. Pilate's domain for three years, it's hard for me to fathom that Pilate would have never heard of this. And I think the things he heard about Jesus did not fit the accusations he's hearing outside. <clears throat> and so thus he poses this question to Jesus, like, who are you? And Jesus is saying, well, from what you have heard, what you have maybe even observed, who would you say that I am? You know, does what you're hearing and what you have heard about, does that make sense? Does that, does that line up? I would say the challenge for us today is to follow this example of Christ in a couple of different ways. I think it's highly unlikely that any of us have met as much opposition and vitriol opposition as, um, as Jesus faced this day. Um, absolute hatred, palpable hatred coming from the crowd outside to the point they're like, we'll crucify this man and if he is innocent, we don't even care if his blood is on us and our children. And when you think through that, that is a, that's a mouthful. But that's how frenzied this crowd was. None of us has faced that kind of pressure. The first lesson we can learn is when you are under this kind of pressure, likely the best thing to do is to say nothing. All right? You can't reason with, with somebody whose anger is completely out of control. Impossible. Reason is gone at that point. And the best thing we can do is to stay calm and to answer not a word. When rage and unreasonableness is present, forget about diplomacy. It, it will not work. So that's the first thing we can, we can learn here. The other thing we can learn, I think, is we should be able to, like Jesus, when faced with false accusation, we should be able to Say to our accusers, where did you get this idea? Did you get this from hearsay? 
Or is there something you have observed in my life that makes you think this? And our lives, by the grace of God, we should live in such a way that is above reproach to the point that when we are falsely accused, that uh, we can have the peace within our hearts that we know it's false. And that um, anybody that's willing to take a scrutinizing look at our lives and look at it objectively will come to that same conclusion. Now, we also have to realize that uh, these things do not come of our own volition. These things only come by the grace of God, and it's only because of what he has done, because of his stripes, that we can live in this way. But that should be the life that we should aspire to as a Christian. Peter has some very, very timely words in uh, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2 and verse 20, and I'm going to read them right now. It goes like this, for what glory is it? If, when ye be buffeted for your faults, that you take it patiently. Peter's like, this is an obvious. If you do something that's out of order, and you receive a, 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 a recompense or your reward, to use biblical language, for that, and you take it patiently, while that's maybe um, uh, commendable, it's really, it's really what you deserve. I mean, you know, so that's really nothing that noteworthy. But, he says, if you do well, and you suffer for it, and you take it patiently. Isn't that exactly what's happening here with Jesus and Pilate? Suffering unjustly and taking it patiently. Peter says, this is acceptable to God. And he further on and he goes, for even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, and he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile, Found in his mouth. And that, that simply means he never spoke a deceitful word. He never spoke a misleading sentence. Then in verse 23, he says, When he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he committed himself to him that judges righteously. What a challenge. And um, amen to Peter's words here in uh, in first peter <clears throat> the second point i would like to uh bring to you point out to you in this confession comes in verse 36 whenever pilate says to him in verse 35 he says um, um you know your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me and then he says what what have you done you know explain this to me and rather than going in and here would have been jesus is in i mean jesus Knowing Jesus doesn't forget anything. He can win an argument with Pharisees over and over and over again, right? He would have had a perfect in here. He could have said, um, hey, this is my opportunity. I'll tell you what I did. I'll tell you how unjust this is. And when I'm done, you'll understand it too. And um, But rather than do that, Jesus, again, I think just totally blew Pilate away with what he said. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, now, if it was of this world, my servants would get up here and they would fight and I wouldn't be delivered to the Jews. And I think he's thinking about Peter a few hours before who had literally took out a sword and he had begun to fight. And I believe Peter, knowing Peter the way I know him, <clears throat> and knowing how he had energy and zeal and, and he was protective of Jesus, I think he could have probably rallied those 12 disciples to a point that there would have been swords flying and there would have been blood all over the place, and likely they could have got out of that garden unscathed. I'm guessing that's possible. Jesus said on the way, he told Peter, he said, you know, he said, put up your sword. He said, actually, he said, I could call 12 legions of angels right now if I wanted to. So the, 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 what Jesus is trying to drive home the pilot is, I'm here because I have decided this is where I would be. My servants would be more than happy to deliver me out of this, and they could. But because I'm of another kingdom... I'm here. And I think, Pilate, that made no sense to him. I'm sure it did. This is probably one of the more familiar verses to us as Anabaptist people that espouse to what we call the doctrine of non-resistance. This is where we kind of pull the core doctrine out of, that we will not fight because our our um, kingdom is not of this world, and thus we do not fight according to the ways of the world. You know, Jesus had spent his short lifetime stressing 
that to be a part of this new kingdom that he was here to set up meant signing up for very, very difficult assignments from a worldly perspective. People had heard him speaking from the mountains and the plains, in the villages, by the brooks. Anywhere that Jesus taught, his message was the same. He would tell people to love their enemies and hate their money. That's just not the way we're wired. It's always the other way, right? He'd, he'd tell them that there's false prophets out there that we need to be aware of. And guess what? They're so hard to spot because they look like sheep. It sounds so good. And he said, be aware of these people. He told people to forgive others until they lost track, completely lost track of how many times they were offended. And furthermore, he said, I want you to move on life's journey on the narrow path. And by the way, you're not going to have very many friends on the narrow path. Not very many people choose that path. In fact, if you want to know what's the right path, you might want to pay attention where most people are headed and then do the opposite. That's a pretty good gauge, he said, because on the broad way, there are many people following that path. So if you see a crowd going in this direction, stop and consider. Likely not the path you want to be on. He had furthermore exemplified godly simplicity. He had eaten with publican and sinners. He had preached to the hypocrites of his day. He had at the same time encouraged and received encouragement from sincere friends. There was Mary and Martha and Lazarus. There's Mary Magdalene. And there was a handful of other Marys that uh, he, uh, he hung out with and he received encouragement from. Now he sums this up into one short sentence. He said, what you saw me do the last three years, I did because I'm of an otherworldly kingdom. And folks, our profession should follow this confession, should it not? Our walk, our talk, our demeanor, our inside and outside should leave no doubt in anybody's mind that we are of an otherworldly kingdom. And herein lies the challenge for us daily as Christians. Am I solidly, am I solidly planted in the otherworldly kingdom? Could it be that my lack of joy in life, the presence of defeat in my life could stem from a life of trying to live with one leg in the narrow and the other on the broad. Is that possible? Jesus said you can't have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. Does our profession line up with our confession? I trust it does. Let us never allow our trumpets to give uncertain sounds or for our carnality to overpower the work of the Spirit in our lives. Today, as we partake of communion, we are exemplifying to Jesus, we're confessing to Jesus today, and to each other, that we are a part of this other kingdom, and we are glad that we are. Never ever second-guess the kingdom of God and the privilege that it is to be a part of it. The third thing I see here in this confession is Jesus in verse 37 confesses to be a witness of the truth. In fact, Jesus at one point has said, I am the embodiment of truth. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That's who I am. He furthermore said here in this confession, he said, anybody that's interested in truth, will listen to me. Now that may hit uh, some some people as being a little um, a little um, full of themselves, you know. But Pilate, it shook him again, just shook him. He's like, here's this man, and he's saying he's just he's just saying it the way he sees it. Like I'm truth. You want to hear truth? Hear me. And Pilate, I, I I think his face went white. I think his knees trembled, and he said, I don't even know what it is. Like what is truth? Like, I don't, I don't think he said this boldly, what is truth. I think if you could have heard Pilate that day, maybe this is my imagination, but I think it was a voice of desperation. What is truth? What is it? I don't know what truth is. I'd be more than happy to follow truth. And Jesus said, well, follow me. You want to know what truth is? Follow me. Jesus had given an, a parable one day that we sing songs about and refer to many times. And that is the wise and the foolish man. Very, very simple parable. 
They both built a house, but the one laid a foundation and the other one didn't. And that foundation, of course, was Jesus Christ. We know that. And when the sand, the storms of time came and washed the sand and destroyed the house, the wise one and the foolish one were exposed for who they were. And Jesus, at the end of that parable, he said, now the difference between the wise and the foolish was the fact that the one heard and did nothing, the other heard and did. Now he said, I just preached a sermon to you and I gave you a lot of things, not just to think about, but to put into action. These are hard things, but you put them into action and you will be a wise man. It's exactly the... uh, um, this past week in the uh, high school's Christian ethics class, we, we talked about this at length, that wisdom is hearing and doing. You can hear all day long, but it be, it's only hot air being blown out of one person's mouth and hot air going into your ear unless you do something about it. And there was many, many, many people that Jesus had offended and had turned away and walked another direction because they absolutely refused to put into practice what Jesus was speaking. I believe this morning that I am speaking to a group of people who love truth. And let's continue to stoke that love for it. I had to think of one of Jesus' um, uh, um, points in the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, where he, he, told, uh, he told the audience there, he said, no, don't swear. He said, don't do that. Well, swearing, taking an oath, was a common everyday practice in, uh, in Jesus' day. I won't get into that, but it was. People did it every day. But what Jesus was saying is, if you're a lover of the truth, you won't swear for two reasons. He said, first of all, you're human and you're fallible. And that means even if you believe that you saw something or you heard something and you believe with all your heart that is the truth, and as much as you can, um, as much as you can research and know, it is the truth. Because of your, because of your humanness and the fact that you are a mortal, there may be a piece of information missing that you don't have that, that if you did have, you would understand that what you're saying isn't the truth, right? So that's, that's the first problem. We're, we're humans and we don't know everything. The other thing is that whenever I raise my hand and I say, I swear I'm telling the truth, I am just by default saying, but tomorrow I might not. Today I'm telling the truth, but tomorrow, uh, if I'm not doing this, it, it, it might not be truthful. You see. And so Jesus said, if you want to be people of the truth, you're going to forego swearing for those two reasons. I just throw that in for what it's worth, but I, I couldn't help but think of that whenever I thought of Jesus' insistence upon truth and hearing truth. It should be no different for us today. I do believe, personally, that the society we live in and the, with the current state of affairs and the, the propaganda, it's always been around. I, I really believe that. I don't think it's anything new necessarily. But the level of falsehood, distortion, and uh, well, I'll quit with adjectives. You get the point. That news media and others, practically everybody will stoop to, I think in some ways it has made me cynical and um, maybe um, maybe not even given to even hearing truth at times because I, I don't trust anybody, right? That, that, that's part of the package of living in 2023. But folks, let us strive to be people that, that give it our best to uncover truth, to stand by truth, let this be part of our profession. In Psalms 15.4, it says, A person of integrity will stand on his word even if it hurts him. Now, that's truth. That's loving truth. So let's tell the truth. Let's live the truth. And let's do like the proverb writer says in Proverbs 23. Let's buy the truth and sell it not. The fourth thing I see in this confession lastly, that I would like to challenge us with, comes in chapter 19 and verse 11. Again, a very familiar verse, but Pilate, um, he's ready to rattle Jesus. He's, he's, done, he's done with Jesus. 
And um, Jesus is in in his in his mind. I think Jesus is starting to hit him as a smart guy. That's what I think he's thinking here. And he goes, "Don't you know if you don't cooperate with me, that I'm going to crucify you? I could do this." And once again, Jesus throws Pilate in a tailspin when he says, "You can't do that unless God gives you power." And I think once again, Pilate just was like, "You've got to be kidding me." He got me one more time, and I actually believe it. That's what I think went through Pilate's mind that day. So Pilate flexes his muscles, and he declares to Jesus, I'm going to crucify you. And Jesus says, well, you will if it's the will of God. And what interests me is um, as soon as Jesus said that, Pilate turns around, he goes out to the crowd, and he earnestly begs them, release this man. Do not crucify this man. I think, I think Pilate knew the truth at this point, but he was unable in the face of the, of the roar outside his judgment hall. I think he could not bring himself to follow what he knew was truth. But back to this point. Is this not the most precious gift that we have as Christians? <clears throat> to know that God is in control of everything in my life. Everything. Do you believe that this morning? That God is in control of everything in your life. The circumstances that you're in, whatever they may be this morning, has in some way, shape, or form either been allowed by or orchestrated by God. And nobody's going to crucify you or anything else to you except that God allows that to happen. The invisible hedge that God sets around his children is invaluable. It is priceless. And when it appears that evil is getting the upper hand with us, we can always go back to that thing that it is not happening to me because God does not know. God has for some reason allowed this thing to to come into my life. And I, I am of the decided opinion that that is why the book of Job is in the Bible, to allow us to see the spiritual world behind the physical and to understand that there could be many things happening in our lives, and we could be on a proving ground that we are not even not even um, uh, that we even know about. We don't know about. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews thirteen five, he said, "For he for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say." The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man can do to me. Now, the Hebrews hadn't been written there whenever Jesus stood on trial. But Jesus, in his, in his all-knowing all knowledge, he knew this was coming down the pike. But isn't this the embodiment of what was taking place that day? The Lord is my helper, and I can boldly say to Pilate that day, this will not happen unless God allows it to happen. I do not fear what you can do to me. Paul enlarges on this in Romans 8. Um, he, 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 he broadens this out quite a bit when he says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is there anything that Paul didn't cover there in that verse, maybe? It would be hard to figure out what it is, isn't it? But what Paul is saying is, again, he's saying it from a different angle, but nothing, nothing, no matter how bad it is, will happen to us without God knowing about it and allowing it for some reason. We can be equally persuaded in our hearts today that Jesus, just as Jesus stood in front of Pilate that day and said that, Again, I believe he said it in a calm and a collected way that God will not allow this unless, he, um, unless it's his will. We never know what we may be subjected to in life, do we? Um, things happen. Um, unbelievable things happen. Things um, take place. I, I'm well aware that because of my humanness and, and your humanness, we stand today um, things look well, all right? You know, we feel pretty good about the, where, I think, for the most part, where we are today. And yet we have no idea what, can, what could happen to us in the coming day, week, year. 
Terrible things can happen. But very good things can happen. And the good news is, no matter how terrible it is, it can still be something that we can face with calmness and quietness because God is on our side. The persuasion of this fact is to our eternal advantage and it will help to strengthen our profession because of this confession. I'm going to finish these verses that I read from Peter at the uh, beginning here and the conclusion of this message. First Peter 2.24 Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. All right, those two things are hand in hand. The deader we are to sins, the more alive we will be, we will be unto righteousness. And likewise, the opposite. The more alive we are to sin, the deader we will be to righteousness. Those two things just have that way of working. But then he goes on to say, he says, by whose stripes we are healed. Do you know why we can live this profession today? It is because Jesus subjected himself to those stripes that day from Pontius Pilate, whom he could have escaped from. Peter further goes on to say, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Brothers and sisters, because of that return today, we embrace with joy our calling. We embrace the profession of our faith, and we commemorate the stripes by which we are healed, and we look forward to today when this commemoration will no longer be needed. And I hope you can say with me that I hope that God hastens that day. Let's kneel together for prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the good confession that you you gave us um, many years ago as you stood before Pilate and you, uh, in a calm and clear way, uh, confessed a confession that we still look at today and we draw inspiration from. And Lord, our desire is that as we face the the uh, things in life that seem hard and um, maybe even at times are unjust in our eyes, that we could with the same calmness and assurance confess the confession that you did and that we could by that run a good race and finish our course with, uh, with integrity. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we commemorate this service together of your shed blood, your broken body. May we always be reminded that because of this we have life and uh, we look forward to your soon return as we uh, celebrate this together today. We ask to see your name. Amen.